The following sermon, entitled Be Spirit-Filled, Not Wine-Filled, was preached on the evening of October 16, 2022, at Hope Protestant Reformed Church in Redlands, California. If you enjoy listening to our sermons, we encourage you to come worship with us. For more information on upcoming service times and Bible study opportunities, please visit our website at hopeprc.org. Let's open God's Word this evening to the book of Colossians. The bulletin says Acts 2. However, as I wrote my sermon, in the end I did not do as much with that passage as I initially intended. We will draw from Colossians 3 as we consider tonight Ephesians 5, verses 18-21. through 21. So the text will be from Ephesians chapter 5, verses 18-21. through 21. In that connection, we read Colossians 3, through verse 17. This is God's inspired Word to His church. If ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth. For ye are dead, and your life is hid with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall ye also appear with Him in glory. Mortify therefore your members which are upon the earth, fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence, and covetousness, which is idolatry. For which things sake the wrath of God cometh on the children of disobedience, in the which ye also walked sometime when ye lived in them. But now ye also put off all these, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy communication out of your mouth. Lie not one to another, seeing that ye have put off the old man with his deeds, and have put on the new man, which is renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created him, where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcision nor uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, bond nor free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on, therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, bowels of mercies, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, long-suffering, forbearing one another and forgiving one another, if any man have a quarrel against any, even as Christ forgave you, so also do ye. And above all these things put on charity, which is the bond of perfectness, and let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to the which also ye are called in one body, and be ye thankful." Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. And whatever ye do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and the Father by Him. Thus far we read God's Word. The text for this evening's sermon will be Ephesians chapter 5. Verses 18 through 21. Ephesians 5, verses 18 through 21. And be not drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for all things unto God and the Father, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ 
submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of God. One of the ways that sacred Scripture teaches and instructs us is by making use of contrasts. That is, throughout Scripture, we have many examples in which a passage will take two opposing things and set them side by side so that we see the difference, so that we see the sharp contrast between the two. We came across such a contrast recently in this series of sermons as we are making our way through the book of Ephesians when, for example, we considered Ephesians 5, verses 8-14. through 14. In verse 8 we were told, For ye were sometimes darkness, but now are ye light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light. There we saw the contrast between light and darkness and were instructed by way of that contrast. Here, in this passage, we have another such contrast. A contrast between being drunk with wine on the one hand and being filled with the Spirit on the other. That's what we read in verse 18. And be not drunk with wine, wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. There's a contrast here. And this contrast is so effective because though being drunk with wine and filled with the Spirit are opposites, they're antithetically opposed to each other, nevertheless, there's similarities between the two. And that each of, whether we're talking about wine or the Spirit, each of them has a way of affecting us, influencing us. And that influence comes to expression in how we live. So that that too is a, a part of the contrast that flows through the whole of the passage. Not just what we're filled with, but how that in turn manifests itself in our lives. And it's when we see that sharp contrast that we then recognize the importance of not being drunk with wine, but instead being filled with the Spirit. That's God's Word to us tonight. The Word comes to us as a part of our ongoing series, making our way through the book of Ephesians. And this Word comes to us on this occasion that is an applicatory sermon. This morning we came together for communion. We celebrated the Lord's Supper. We are reminded of the good news of salvation in Jesus Christ, the One who removes all of our sins from us as far as east is from the west. And now with gratitude in our heart, with thanksgiving for the saving work of Christ, we now come to church the second time saying, what shall I render unto the Lord for all His benefits toward me? How can I show my thankfulness? And the answer of this passage is be not drunk with wine, but instead be filled with the Spirit. So the theme for tonight's sermon is be Spirit-filled, not wine-filled. First, we'll look at two opposite agents. Second, we'll look at two opposite expressions. And then finally, Two opposite attitudes. Attitudes especially towards others, including those in authority. 
In the first point, we want to see the clear contrast between being drunk with wine and being filled with the Spirit. We begin with the negative, be not drunk with wine. And when the passage speaks of wine, it's using that as representative for any sort of alcohol, any sort of strong drink. And this passage is forbidding not the use of alcohol, but the abuse of alcohol. This passage is not forbidding the use of alcohol. For the passage does not say, and do not drink wine, but it says, and be not drunk with wine. And that's in harmony with the rest of Scripture. For Scripture recognizes a legitimate place in the life of the child of God for wine. The clearest example is what we saw this morning. Wine is one of the elements that's used in the Lord's Supper. There are other passages though. For example, Paul writing to Timothy tells him to take a little wine for thy stomach's sake and thy frequent infirmities. And what that's teaching us is that contrary to what some teach in the broader church world, it is permissible for the child of God to enjoy a glass of wine or some other such drink. This passage is not forbidding the use altogether. But it is most certainly forbidding the abuse of alcohol. The abuse of wine. Be not drunk with wine wherein is excess. And this too is in harmony with the the rest of Scripture. Really, this is the emphasis of Scripture. If we were to step back and ask the question, what does the Bible teach us about alcohol and strong drink? The emphasis is the the warning about the the danger of becoming drunk. For example, Proverbs 20, verse 1, wine is a mocker. Strong drink is raging. And whosoever is deceived thereby is not wise. In Paul's epistles, he regularly warns about being given over to wine. So the Scripture makes clear that it's wrong to drink so much alcohol that one becomes drunk. One comes under the influence of that alcohol. And it's wrong exactly because of the effects of alcohol. You see, alcohol as a substance, as an agent, has the the effect that it, it brings us under its influence. That's why we speak of being under the influence. That is, alcohol is a way of controlling us. Think about that for a moment. Wine and other strong drinks embolden us to do what we would never dare to do otherwise. Wine and other strong drinks make someone who is under its influence, completely unafraid of any consequences of their actions or what they might say. Wine affects us when we we drink too much of it. It brings us under its influence. And it's not a good influence. Because rather than sharpening our faculties, wine has a way of diminishing them. Diminishing our senses. And along those lines, when we are given to too much wine, we lose self-control. 
We start to do things that we would not otherwise do. And all this is to say that when one is under the influence of wine or alcohol, it leads to further sins. And we're going to elaborate that on the elaborate on that point in the second point of the sermon. But for now, we notice it's exactly because of the effects, the influence, the control of wine that Scripture forbids it. Because being under that influence is contrary to the calling we have as Christians. That calling was mentioned in Ephesians 5, verse 15. See then that ye walk circumspectly. And the idea there is walk carefully. Walk in a, a deliberate and intentional manner seeking to do all things to the glory of God. Well, if we're under the control, the influence of wine, that becomes almost impossible. The effects of wine hinder us in our calling to live the Christian life, to walk circumspectly. And therefore, the calling comes to us, be not drunk with wine. And that's a word we need to hear tonight. Because there is a temptation for us to follow the wicked world and their abuse of wine and other strong drinks. The world views alcohol as the means to either diminish sorrow or to bring joy. In other words, the world turns to alcohol to dull the pain, the sorrows that they experience. Many view alcohol as the remedy for all the the grief and the hardships of life. Whereas in other cases, alcohol alcohol is viewed as the means for having a good time. The world's idea of a party has as its heart and center alcohol and lots of it. This is how you have a a truly good time, says the world. And the danger for us is that we, we adopt the thinking of the world. We adopt the same view of the world with regard to wine and other strong drinks. And so we need to be told, reminded tonight, Be not drunk with wine, congregation. Yes, there is liberty here. Yes, it's legitimate to have a glass of wine. But are we content with just a glass of wine? Or is it drink after drink after drink? What do we say when we come home after a hard day? Is it, I just need a drink? In order to feel better? What about you, young people and young adults? What's your view? And I single out the young people and young adults because it seems that's especially when the temptation is strong, when it's greatest. What's your view of a good time? Is it when there's lots of alcohol? You're working up a buzz. You're coming under the influence. This passage reminds us, be not drunk with wine or any other strong drink. Instead, 
be filled with the Spirit. That's the positive. The negative, be not drunk with wine. But in sharp contrast to that, the Word of God comes to us tonight and says, be filled with the Spirit. And in our Bibles, you will notice that the word Spirit is capitalized, and rightly so, because we're talking about the Spirit of Jesus Christ. This is the Spirit that Jesus Christ promised to send to His people. The Comforter who would come and teach God's people and reveal the truths of God and remind the disciples of what they had learned. This is the Spirit who would come to live and dwell in our hearts. And Jesus Christ is the One who sends that Spirit to us as His own Spirit. And He was given the right to do that on the basis of His saving work. For first, He humbled Himself. Jesus came down into this world. He was born of a woman. He assumed a a true human nature. And in doing all that, He took upon Himself our sin and guilt. And as one who is thus guilty before God, He suffered all of His life long. Which suffering culminated in His death at Calvary where He he gave His life on our behalf. Where He suffered the wrath of God for our sins. But then having first humbled Himself, God then exalted Him. He raised Him from the dead and made Him to sit at His own right hand. And God the Father, who is the source of every blessing, gave those, as it were, to Christ as the One who would now dispense those blessings. They are they're stored up in Christ as a treasury. And now, He's the One who now blesses us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places. And among those blessings that Christ now showers upon His church is the Holy Spirit. He's the One who sends the Spirit as the Spirit of Christ so that in and through His Spirit, Christ Himself is with us. Christ Himself gives us His own life. That's the Spirit who is in view here. We're talking about the Spirit of Jesus Christ. And now consider what He does when He comes and lives and dwells within our hearts. The effect that His work of grace has on us in contrast to the effect of wine. There are similarities. For when the Spirit of Christ comes upon us, He brings us under His influence. He exerts His control upon us in that He he establishes the the rule of Jesus Christ in our hearts. He, He brings us into the kingdom of Jesus Christ. And along with that, He emboldens us. He makes us able and willing to do what we would never be able to do otherwise. What we would never dare to do. And on top of that, the the Spirit who fills our hearts makes us completely unafraid of the consequences for living unto our Savior. There's similarities. And we see that when we look at 
a passage such as Acts chapter 2, the passage I thought about reading but decided not to, but still worth mentioning in that what did people think of Peter when he got up to preach the sermon? They thought he was drunk with wine. The reality is he was, had been filled with the Spirit. And that Spirit works a, a change. He, he brings Simon Peter under his influence. And he takes a man who previously denied the Lord Jesus Christ three times because he was afraid of the faces of men and emboldens him. Makes him willing to preach sermons that he would never preach otherwise. And to do so regardless of what consequences are going to come upon him. So that even when the rulers tell him, stop preaching, he says, I will obey God rather than men. That's the work. That's the influence. That's the effect of the Spirit. So that we see there's, there's these similarities between being drunk with wine and being filled with the Spirit, but yet they're antithetical. They're, they're precise opposites. Because whereas being under the influence of wine leads to sin, being filled with the Spirit leads to good. Because when we're filled with the Spirit, that doesn't dull our senses. Instead, He he strengthens our faculties. He takes that mind that was in darkness. He illuminates it. He takes the, the heart that was hardened and He softens it. He takes the will that was evil and disobedient and makes it good and pliable. And He works in us in such a way that Rather than diving headlong into sin, we are now zealous for good works. We, we seek to live in the service of our God. That's the influence of the Spirit. And now we can extend the contrast still further. We said the wicked world turns to alcohol to diminish their pain or to bring joy. And we recognize that no matter how much alcohol one drinks, they will never have the effect that they want. Because it's only the Spirit who can comfort us in our pain. He is the Comforter. And He comforts us by giving us the one thing that can truly comfort our hearts. He gives us Christ. He unites us to our Savior so that we have Christ and all of the blessings that are found in Jesus Christ. And it's the Holy Spirit who alone can give us true joy and happiness. Not wine, not alcohol, not lots of it, but the Spirit as He he unites us to Jesus Christ so that we belong to our Savior, so that we have that which truly matters. Our Savior Jesus Christ and all of the riches of salvation that are found in Him. It's a Spirit who applies what Jesus Christ accomplished. And it's in light of that, who the Spirit is, what He does, that the calling of the text is be filled with the Spirit. And now admittedly, that is a rather puzzling command. The language of the text is, and be not drunk with wine. That makes sense. 
but be filled with the Spirit. And I say that's puzzling. Be filled with the Spirit? You're telling me to do this? Because it almost sounds like it's up to me to fill myself with the Spirit. That it's up to me to to make the Spirit come and live within me and to empower me. But that obviously cannot be the meeting. Because to whom is He writing? He's writing to those who've already been given the Spirit. They already have the Spirit filling their hearts. That's evidenced by their, their faith and their walk of life. And what is more, though this is a command, it's a passive command. Be filled with the Spirit. Most commands are, are telling us something in the active voice. You go fill that thing up. But here we're told, be filled. It's put in the passive here. And that's reminding us that it's the Spirit who sovereignly comes upon us. Makes His abode in our hearts and life and gives us new life. That's His work. Now all of that said, we still have to do justice to the, the positive idea here. Because this is a command that comes to us tonight. Be filled with the Spirit. So what does that mean? How are we to understand this? There are really two ideas to this. On the one hand, the calling comes to us, be filled with the Spirit. And the idea is that we are to be filled with the Spirit by means of the Word and taking in the Word of God. And we say that because the Spirit always works in connection with the Word. Really, the Spirit joins Himself to the Word so that when we take in the Word, the Spirit, as it were, comes to us by means of the Word. And that connection between the Word and the Spirit comes out when we compare this passage of Scripture with the very similar passage found in the book of Colossians. We read from Colossians chapter 3. And in Colossians 3, verse 16, we have a verse that closely parallels verses 18 and 19 in Ephesians 5. Colossians 3, verse 16, "...let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord." This verse is similar because Ephesians 5, verse 19 is going to go on to talk about speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in our hearts. So these two texts are clearly parallel to each other. We're to use the one to understand the other. And what's interesting is the difference between the two. In Ephesians 5, we're told, be filled with the Spirit. In Colossians 3, verse 16, we're told, let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. And those aren't competing ideas. Those ideas are connected. Because being filled with the Word of... Letting the Word of Christ dwell in us richly goes hand in hand to be, with being filled with the Spirit. So if we're going to understand what it means to be told, be filled with the Spirit, the idea is take in the Word. 
Whether it's by sitting under the preaching, whether it's by reading your Bible, whether it's attending a Bible study, take in the Word. And by means of the Word, the Spirit works in our hearts and lives. That, on the one hand, is the idea. On the other hand, when we're told be filled with the Spirit, another idea that is equally correct is that it's telling us to live out of the Spirit's work in our hearts and lives so as to give evidence to His presence. It's really the exact opposite of the word that we heard in Ephesians 4, verse 30. Ephesians 4, verse 30, we were told, and grieve not the Holy Spirit of God. That is, do not pain the Holy Spirit by your willful, deliberate, persistent sins. Do not go against the work of the Spirit. You have Him in your heart. And now do not grieve Him by resisting His work, His influence. That's putting it negatively. The positive is what we have here in Ephesians 5, verse 18. Be filled with the Spirit. That is, you have the Spirit within you. He's working in you. And now you work out of that. Rather than resisting the influence of the Spirit, walk in the Spirit. We're to live out of His good influence. And in this way, we show that He has filled our hearts. We give evidence to the fact that the Spirit is at work in our hearts and lives. That's the positive calling. Be filled with the Spirit. So negatively, be not drunk with wine. Positively, be filled with the Spirit. We see a clear contrast between the two. But now that contrast extends to the expressions of these two things. For whether we are drunk with wine or filled with the Spirit, each of them is going to manifest themselves, but in completely different ways. And we want to look at those different expressions, those different lifestyles that flow from either being drunk with wine or filled with the Spirit. Again, we start with the negative and being drunk with wine and how that expresses itself, manifests itself, and it does so in a life of excess. That's verse 18. And be not drunk with wine wherein is excess. And now I will admit to you that before studying this passage in depth, I always took those words, wherein is excess, as simply saying, don't drink wine in excess. And certainly, that is what it means to get drunk. But that's not the point of those three words, wherein is excess. But instead, it's saying, becoming drunk with wine leads to a life of excess. And the idea of that word excess is a life of debauchery, a life of reckless living, a life of uncontrolled behavior, a life characterized by sin. That's the idea of excess. For it's drunkenness that leads to a sinful indulgence in Pleasure, especially sins against the seventh commandment. 
This drunkenness that manifests itself not just in slurred speech, but in speech that is offensive to the neighbor. Speech that is dishonoring to our God. Getting drunk leads to all manner of sin. That's the point. And this is, this is not the only passage of Scripture that teaches us that. This is the teaching, for example, of Proverbs chapter 23, verses 29 and following. Proverbs chapter 23, verses 29 and following. Who hath woe? Who hath sorrow? Who hath contentions? Who hath babbling? Who hath wounds without cause? Who hath redness of eyes? They that tarry long at the wine, they that go to seek mixed wine. Verse 33 adds, saying about someone who is drunk, thine eyes shall behold strange women, and thy heart shall utter perverse things. When you become drunk, it leads to more sin. And is this not what we see when we look at the biblical examples? What happens to Noah when he gets drunk? Leads to the sin of nakedness. What happens to Lot when he gets drunk? Leads to the sin of incest. And now all of this is further reason to heed the main negative calling. Be not drunk with wine. Because look at where it leads. Look at the effect that it has when it brings you under its influence. It emboldens you to to do things you would never dare to do otherwise. To make advances on a woman who's not your wife. To say words that are unbecoming of a Christian. To let things out of your mouth that you would otherwise keep within your mouth. Becoming drunk leads to more sin. And therefore, do not be drunk with wine. Not so much because you might do something stupid that you regret later on. Not because you risk getting a DUI. But because you're going to offend your God. You're going to do things that provoke Him. It only increases our inclination, our propensity to sin. It's it's bad enough already that we have the old man of sin. But now when you add alcohol to that, it's like pouring gasoline on a fire. It leads to more sin. Therefore, do not be drunk with wine. Because this is how it will manifest itself. This is how it will express itself in a life of sinful excess. Instead, we're to be filled with the Spirit And to be filled in such a way that that too manifests itself, expresses itself in the way that it ought to. And this text points us to two main expressions, manifestations of being Spirit-filled instead of wine-filled. That's the connection between verses 18 and then 19 and 20. Verse 18, the end, gives us the main positive word, but be filled with the Spirit. And now verses 19 and 20 are going to 
elaborate on that and explain to us what that looks like. First of all, this manifests itself in a life of singing. Singing. Verse 19, speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. Notice what is being sung here. Not the songs of the wicked world. Not the songs that celebrate man or glorify the pleasures of sin. Not those. Not the songs that are playing loudly at the parties where the alcohol is flowing freely. But songs that glorify God. It speaks of psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Psalms being pious songs that commemorate God's mercy. Hymns being songs of praise to God. Spiritual songs being songs that are given by the Spirit. And just as the Spirit points to Jesus Christ, magnifies Jesus Christ, so too these songs are the songs that are all about our Savior Jesus Christ. Psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. That's what's in view here. And the reality is, almost certainly, the reference is to the 150 psalms that are found in our Bible and the versifications of those psalms. Because these three words, psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, are the exact same words that are used in the different headings, the different superscriptions that are given to the various 150 psalms. If you were to take these three words in the Greek language and look them up in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, where you find them is in all of the headings before the 150 psalms that are the book of psalms. That's what this is really a reference to. Sing the psalms. That's what's being sung here. But now notice, to whom these songs are being sung. First and foremost, to our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 19, speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your hearts to the Lord. To our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, because that's the purpose of our singing. To praise Him, to glorify Him, and to do so for all that He's done for us, for His willingness to take our sin and guilt upon Himself, for His willingness to go to the cross of Calvary and lay down His life on our behalf. We are to sing songs about our Savior. Songs that glorify our Savior. We sing to the Lord. But did you know that even as we sing those songs to the Lord, we are also speaking to one another. That's the teaching of the text. We sing to the Lord and at the very same time, we speak to one another. Notice the beginning of verse 19. Speaking to yourselves. And the idea is not to yourself as an individual, but to each other. To your fellow Christians. To the body of Christ. This is put even stronger in 
the parallel passage in Colossians 3, verse 16. There we're told, but the Word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another. When we sing praises to God, we are teaching each other. We are admonishing one another. Have you ever noticed that in the songs that we sing? Have you ever noticed how many of the songs that we sing, we are actually addressing each other? And that comes out when the pronoun is something like, praise ye the Lord. We're calling one another. We're exhorting each other to join in praising God. That's what we do in the opening doxology. We're calling upon each other and every other creature and the angels in heaven to join us in praising the triune God. And we'll see this in the song we're going to sing immediately after the sermon. We're calling one another. We're speaking to one another to praise our God. So these are spiritual songs that are being sung. They're being sung to the Lord and at the same time we're speaking to one another. Now still under this Still within verse 19, notice the instrument that's being used here. Speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart. The instrument here is not the piano, not the violin. It's not even the tongue. But the heart. And that's so crucially important because there's nothing more offensive to our God than words of praise flowing from a mouth that is disconnected from the heart. God is not pleased by praise that is formal or mechanical and heartless, but He would have us praise Him in our hearts, with our hearts, out of a heart of love for Him in light of all that He's done for us in Jesus Christ. Speak to yourselves in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Sing. Make melody in your hearts to the Lord. That's the calling. And Now, link that back to the main point here that this then is how a Spirit-filled life expresses itself, manifests itself. It's the Spirit who works this in us. Because of ourselves, we would never glorify our Savior in this way. But when we come under His influence, He emboldens us to do what we would never do otherwise. So that even though one might struggle to sing on tune. One might have a lousy singing voice. He still sings out praises to God, completely unafraid of what anyone else thinks about Him because He's singing to the Lord. That's what the Spirit works in us. And now exactly because He's at work in our hearts and lives, the calling comes Sing this way. Sing these songs. Sing to the Lord. Is this what we sing? What tune? What melody is in your heart, child of God? So the songs of the world, 
or is it the songs that bring praise to our Savior Jesus Christ? As those who've been filled with the Spirit, let us now live out of that and give evidence to the Spirit's work of grace in our hearts and lives by singing. That's the first evidence, the first manifestation. The second, closely connected, is thanksgiving. That brings us to verse 20. The main word, be filled with the Spirit. Then we ask, what does that look like? And verse 20 helps answer, giving thanks always for all things unto God and the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Speaks of thanksgiving. And I trust you recognize that's the very opposite of complaining. Of grumbling. Of always murmuring about all the problems. And is that not what characterizes those who are getting drunk with wine? They do it to vent all their sorrows. They murmur. They grumble. They complain. In contrast to that, the Spirit-filled life expresses itself in thanksgiving, which is the exact opposite. Because thanksgiving is the the grateful acknowledgement for all the the benefits, all the blessings that we've received. It's the, the gratitude for what God has given to us. Notice here when we are to give thanks. Always. Giving thanks always, says the text. Not just when times are good. Not just when everything goes our way, but always. Even in the midst of the battle. Even when there are hardships and trials that come upon us. Even when we have very little from a a material, financial point of view. Give thanks always. Notice for what we are to give thanks. All things. Giving thanks always for all things. And now we hear this and we think, is Paul being a little bit unrealistic? He already said always, and that's hard enough, but now he's saying for all things. And the answer is no, he's not being unrealistic. Because do you remember where he's writing from? He's in prison. And in his letter to the Philippians, which is written during the same time, he gives thanks not just in spite of his chains, but for his chains. He gives thanks that he's been put in prison and the Gospel's been furthered by that very thing. And thus he's not being unrealistic when he says, give thanks always for all things. And this is in harmony with Scripture, which calls us to Rejoice to glory in our trials and afflictions, knowing the the good fruit, the good effect that God, the good purpose that God has in them for us. So the when, always, for what, all things. Notice to whom. Giving thanks always for all things unto God and the Father, of course. Because God is the source of all the good things that come to us. He is the the fountain of every good and perfect gift. 
And therefore, rather than thinking we get the credit for what we have, we, we give it all to God. We give thanks unto God and the Father. And in doing that, really what we're doing is taking those gifts that He showers upon us and returning them to the giver, as it were, but now in the form of thankful adoration. That's to whom we give thanks. Notice finally how we are to do this. Giving thanks always for all things unto God and the Father. Here's the how. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. In the name of our Savior. Because He's the one who earned all these blessings. He's the one who merited them by His saving work. We give thanks in His name because He's the one who takes those trials, those afflictions, and turns them for my advantage so that they serve my salvation. And what is more, we give thanks in the name of the Lord because He's the one who takes our imperfect praise, our thanksgiving, and perfects it, makes it pleasing to our God. Because even our thanksgiving is polluted with our sin. And therefore, even our thanksgiving needs to be washed in the blood of Christ so that it might be pleasing, so that it might be acceptable to our God. So the calling then is to give thanks always for all things unto God and the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And now again, all of this then is the, to be the expression of being filled with the Spirit. By nature, we are not thankful people. By nature, we want to take the credit, but when the Spirit brings us under His influence, when He's at work in our hearts and lives, He works in us so that we become able and willing to do what we would never do otherwise. And that's to say thanks, God for all that You've given to me, for all that You've done for me. It's the Spirit who works this in us. But now exactly because He's at work in our hearts and lives, the calling comes to us, be thankful, give thanks as an expression, as evidence of the, the Spirit's work in your heart in life. Are we doing that? What characterizes our lives? Grumbling? Murmuring? Complaining? Or is it thanksgiving to God? May God so work in us by His Spirit that we give thanks always for all things to our God and Father, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So we've been seeing a contrast. A contrast between being drunk with wine and being filled with the Spirit. And that contrast has extends to how each of these things expresses itself, manifests itself, so that being drunk with wine manifests itself in a life of sinful excess, whereas being filled with the Spirit 
expresses itself in a life of singing praises to God and thanksgiving to God. But now there's one more thing that really is a part of the expression, the manifestation, but yet is distinct enough from the others that it's worth separating out and making a third point out of it. Namely, we need to see that whether we are wine-filled or spirit-filled is going to lead to two opposite attitudes. And that's how verse 21 relates. Verse 21 says, submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of God. This verse focuses on being Spirit-filled, but in light of what we have here in the positive, we can readily see the implied negative. And that one who is wine-filled or drunk with wine Well, that expresses itself in rebellion instead of submission. And not only is that the implication of this text, it's the teaching of Scripture. Scripture itself links those two things together. For example, in Deuteronomy 21, verse 20, there's a word about parents and their sinful son. And we read this, "...and they shall say unto the elders of his city, this our son is stubborn and rebellious, He will not obey our voice. He is a glutton and a drunkard. That verse is connecting the sin of drunkenness with being stubborn, rebellious, and refusing to listen to the voice of those in a position of authority. And that's telling us that this is one more way in which being wine-filled expresses itself in a life of rebellion. No doubt, anyone who's ever dealt with someone who's drunk has experienced this. They will not listen to anybody. They're often characterized by a total lack of rebellion because of that influence of the wine. It emboldens them to do what they would never otherwise dare do. That is, go directly against some authority, completely unafraid of whatever consequences are going to come upon them for their sin. And I trust you recognize that then is still further reason to heed that main negative word, be not drunk with wine. Now all of that's really just giving the negative that's implied here in light of the positive. Let's focus on the positive. The positive is that being Spirit-filled expresses itself in a life of submission. Verse 21, submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of God. This includes submission to those in authority. And that's evident from what follows in the subsequent verses. And that it's going to go on to talk about wives submitting to husbands and children submitting to parents and employees submitting to employers. That's part of the calling. For in God's providence, He has placed some people in positions of authority and He's placed others under those people in authority. And all of us to one degree or another are under the authority of others and thus the calling is to submit to them. And what drives this is the fear of our God and the fear of Jesus Christ. That's 
The very last part of the verse, submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of God or of Christ. For you see, it's the recognition that Christ is really the one who's above all. As the one who's been exalted to God's right hand, He reigns supreme. And as a part of His reign, He places others under Him, but who are nevertheless in a position of authority over still others. And it's having a proper fear for God and for Christ that leads us then to submit ourselves to whomever God has placed over us because we recognize that in doing so, we're really submitting to Christ. To His rule. It's a matter of obedience to Christ. I'm going to obey anyone He's placed over me out of love for Him. And it's the Spirit who works this in us. Because by nature, we too are rebellious. By nature, we want nothing to do with authority. But the Spirit works in us. Enabling us to do what we would never do otherwise. Namely, submit to those that Christ has placed over us. So part of the application has to do with those in authority over us. But the application is actually broader than that. Because the language of the text is not submitting yourselves to those in authority, but submitting yourselves one to another, to each other. And this is before there's any sort of distinction made between Husbands and wives and children and parents and employees and employers. Before we get to any of that, this word comes to us, submit yourselves one to another. And what this is calling for is a a mutual submission between all of us. A submission that does not contradict the fact that there are those in authority and there are those who are under authority, but a a submission that recognizes that when someone else brings me the Word of God, it does not matter whose lips that Word is coming from, so long as it is indeed the Word of God, I am to submit myself to that. Let me illustrate this. The idea is that if a child... notices some inconsistencies between what their parents are saying and how their parents are living. And the child, perhaps entirely out of innocence, notices that and brings it up. The parents submit themselves to that. The child is reminding them of the Word of God that this child has learned from his parents. And though the child is under the parents, nevertheless, The parents submit to the Word that the child brings because it's the Word of God. Another example, if a wife under her husband reminds her husband, you have the calling to lead as the head of this home in devotions. That husband submits himself to that Word because it's the Word of God that's being brought. That's the idea here. When the Scriptures call us to submit yourselves one to another, that is this mutual submission, the idea is we're submitting ourselves to the the Word of God regardless of whose mouth that Word is coming from. And again, it's the fear of God that drives this. Submitting yourselves 
one to another in the fear of God. Because this is God's Word that we're talking about. This is That Word's the authority for my heart in life. And therefore, when anyone brings me that Word, and it, it is truly the Word of God, not a distortion, not a, a twisting of the Word, but when that Word is truly brought, I will submit myself to that. as a manifestation, as an evidence of the work of the Spirit in my heart and life. Because by nature, I'm totally unwilling to listen to what somebody in a position under me has to say up to me. But when we are under the influence of the Spirit, He enables us to do what we would never otherwise do. And that's to say in humility, you're right, my son. You're right, my wife, or whoever it may be. You brought the Word of God. And I'm going to submit myself to that. So may God so work in us by His Spirit that we live according to this Word too. Amen. Let us pray. Father in Heaven, we thank Thee for Thy Word. Apply it unto our hearts and lives. Cause it to bear fruit. We pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen.